0: This time, the Duke of York, the election, and the controller of MI6. And me, I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. Prince Andrew has stepped down from royal duties for what he called the foreseeable future. Among the organisations he will also stop publicly representing are various military charities. It follows the growing backlash over his friendship with the convicted paedophile Jeffrey Epstein. In a statement, the Duke said he deeply sympathises with Epstein's victims. He's also acknowledged the fallout from a BBC interview had become a major disruption to the royal family. Well, Claire Sadler is here in the studio with me and she's spoken to Buckingham Palace's press office this morning. Claire. what did they tell you?
1: Uh, Well, I was asking them about the statement, obviously, from Prince Andrew and this issue of him stepping back. And really, I was trying to get to the bottom of of what does it mean? Um, And they were saying that he isn't going to be giving up his uh, military titles or patronages. He's going to retain those, but he won't be carrying out any public engagements in relation to them. Um, They were keen to point out that as a military veteran and also um, as a member of the royal family, he will continue to uh, take part in ceremonies like um, Trooping in the Colour and Remembrance. So what military charities is the Duke involved with? Well, I uh, sort of totted them all up. He, there's a long list of charities and organisations, more than 30 of them that he's linked with either as uh, you know patron or grand president, various different titles. Uh, for example, there's Broughton House Home for Ex-Service Personnel. He's linked with um, a number of British Legion uh, branches. He's also um, the uh, uh, patron of SSVC, which is the parent charity of BFBS mm-hmm. uh, as well. Um, and- and a a number of other charities as well, a a large number of them. Christopher Lee, our defence
0: analyst, is also here. Christopher, what honorary military appointments does he have? Because he's not giving those up, is he?
2: No, there are about 14, I think 14 or 15 of them. Uh, For example, he is an admiral of the Sea Cadets. He is a colonel in the Grenadiers, uh, Grenadier of Guards. He's also colonel-in-chief for a number of Canadian regiments like Scottish Fusiliers in Canada, etc., and they take this quite seriously. It's a very important point. Uh, it's usually when you're Colonel-in-Chief, it means that you're that the monarch is the is the commander-in-chief or uh, or whatever. But Colonel-in-Chief is a very important thing. So you go to, um, for example, investitures. Uh, when they're on parade in the United Kingdom with something else, you will go and inspect them, and you will become very much part of their presence. And on mess nights, for example, they uh, they raise a glass at the end, you're know, the first to get cheered, and then the second one is the Queen. Mm. And so it's it's easy, important, but there's no suggestion at the moment that they are going to be uh, let go.
0: And Claire, we will still see him at some military events, won't we? Which ones and why?
1: Well. Uh... As I said, he's 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 retaining the titles. They, 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 he, those aren't being lost to him, but he is stepping back. But we will uh, see him at Trooping the Colour. We will see him at Remembrance. He is still uh, a member of the royal family, and he is still a war veteran. We know that he served during the Falklands War. So he will still be at those events, but he won't for now. This is a temporary, it was emphasised to me, this is a temporary standing back he won't be at things like medal parades where we're used to seeing royals turn up to hand out the medals, do inspections. So he won't be at those kind of public engagements.
0: Christopher Lee, in your experience and all the research you've done, have you ever seen anything like this before?
2: No. The, I mean, certainly not in modern, uh, uh, I suppose, modern monarchies. It certainly happened. Not any, hasn't been anything like it. Uh, it's certainly not the of thing you would ever have, have, to have to consider. The monarch has changed. Uh, and the monarchy, in 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 this case, has sort of acted and put itself together, and that's what we're seeing today.
0: Claire, thank you very much.
1: Sitrep with Kate
0: Still to come, the spy chief in his own words, the head of MI six on his life in the service and how the world of espionage is changing.
1: PFS sitrep.
0: It's a week of manifesto launches in the run-up to the general election. Today, it's the turn of the Labour Party. Laura Macon-Isherwood was watching and joins us now from Birmingham. Hi, Laura. So, what does their manifesto say about defence?
3: Well, there was three pages in total in that manifesto booklet that was handed out to press uh, this morning in Birmingham. Um, And in it, it listed a number of commitments that it's going to, the party is going to uh, continue uh, if it gets into government. So, it said they're going to go they're going to spend at least 2% of GDP uh, on defence, keep up that NATO commitment and also renew the Trident nuclear deterrent. Now, that's a subject that's always hung over Jeremy Corbyn in interviews when uh, people have been trying to work exactly where he stands on that issue. But it seems that the Labour policy that that Trident nuclear deterrent will be renewed has stood firm. there's also a lot of promises in there for veterans, saying that there's going to be access to lifelong learning and also better health care for them. It's probably a big push to try to challenge the conservative pledges who have focused on veterans' issues in their defence pledges so far. We spoke to Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth earlier.
2: Many who have served our country, who have literally put their life on the line for our country, come back home to their families and simply don't get the mental health support that they really need. and Some people's lives spiral, we've got veterans sleeping rough on our streets. I just think it's a disgrace the way in which we're treating veterans, so we want to put more investment in mental health services to make sure all our veterans get the mental health support they really deserve.
3: There's also going to be a scrap to public sector pay, the public sector pay cap, sorry, that's going to be across the board for public services and it will include armed forces salary. It's going to be a pay rise of 5% in year one, senior Labour sources told me earlier, saying that that's the equivalent of around £1,758 for a sergeant. That's what they'll see if Labour gets into government. Uh, We spoke to Shadow Communities and Local Government uh, Secretary Andrew Gwynne, who says personnel just need to be thanked.
4: Those people who have fought in our armed forces, I say thank you to them for the work that they do in keeping us safe and ensuring that our country is kept secure. We have a duty to look after each and every one of them, not just whilst they are serving our country, but for the many years and decades afterwards as they return to civilian life. Uh, So, Laurie, have you got an
0: idea how this might all go down with the military?
3: Uh, The Conservatives maintain that they are the party for the armed forces, and I think, actually, they're probably counting on getting their vote. But Labour, the people that I've spoken to today from the shadow front front bench, say that that's simply not the case. Labour can also offer to the armed forces uh, good things, that they are committed to it. They still focus on that peacekeeping element, though, saying that they're going to boost the budget to around £100 million a year to focus on peacekeeping operations. They're going to uh, look to try... To reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world. But ultimately, there's a lot of positivity in there.
0: All right, Laura Macon Ishwood, thank you very much. Uh, Christopher Lee, what do you think of what you heard there?
2: It's interesting, isn't it? The, the week before the election, is a NATO summit in London. Um, what Trump cannot do now, because they've said they will keep up with the 2%, he cannot turn up in London and say Labour is doing less than he, Trump, is demanding for all the NATO members, which is something he has actually said before. Um, the other thing which is very important is that uh, the Conservatives seeing themselves as the, as the party of the armed forces, it's not true. Uh, Labour has always seen itself above conservatives and the armed forces quite often seen labor as the party of the armed forces for one separate and single reason and that is the connection between defense and the industrial base of the united kingdom and its meant jobs and you will never get anything from a Labour Party uh, would, would designate a town as uh, as a write-off if what it meant you think, jobs.
0: What do you think about this uh, this lifelong commitment to, to veterans? Because, I mean, it, it's it's interesting that that's laid out by the Labour Party, but if the Armed Forces Covenant is working, you don't need it, do you?
2: Well, it's because the Armed Forces Covenant is not working that you do need this sort of Why commitment. Why didn't they
0: just say, we'll, we'll, we'll uphold the, the Armed Forces Covenant and and, and re- enshrine it into law make it an absolute obligation?
2: Well, because it's important that they're emphasising veterans, not just the armed forces uh, covenant, which is all soldiers. It's interesting here, isn't it, that uh, in the past 12 months we've had the appointment of a, a veterans minister, and it's important for Labour uh, and Conservatives not to give any indication that they might back on this and say, right, off. So you think it's
0: staying then? Well, well it, it looks like it. it.
2: They're, they're suggesting that it's so important. Uh, that it's got to stay. But, you know, when they come to fiddling around uh, ministerial appointments, uh, that may change. There's another side of it, for example, which is the industrial side, and that's the minister responsible for shipbuilding, because shipbuilding doesn't sound much to do with the Navy. And, of course, it is. It's frigates. It's keeping all those jobs on the Clyde and in Barrow keep going.
0: Meanwhile, the Liberal Democrats launched their manifesto yesterday. It includes plans for a new law that would give MPs the final say on British military action. While Prime Ministers have put it to a vote in recent years, it's currently just a convention. However, the Lib Dems insist under their plan, a government would still be able to launch action for emergencies or under a treaty obligation without parliamentary approval. Well, James Hurst was there and spoke to Lord Newby, who is the Lib Dem leader in the House of Lords.
5: There's already a convention. What's, what's wrong with that convention that needs it to be turned into law? I think one of the problems with the way we do things in this country, generally, is that we do a lot of things by convention. Uh, and that only works if everybody agrees To abide by the Convention. And what we've seen in this Parliament is that the government has not abided by things that we thought were conventions. So we think it's much better to codify it so everybody's clear. And you don't have a great argument about whether you have a a vote. You might have an argument about what the vote says, but you don't have an argument about whether to have a vote in the first place. But in your manifesto, you acknowledge there are certain circumstances, treaty obligations, uh, an emergency. where a government would need to act. Now, you might create a law that hamstrings a government where it needs to act as well. Well, I don't think in reality that's much of a problem for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, uh, Parliament can act, uh, mainly, Parliament can act really quickly if it wants to do. It can be recalled if it's not there. We've done that in the past. And the number of occasions when a crisis appears out of nowhere over 24 hours or 48 hours is almost unimaginable actually. You know that things are building up to a crisis uh, and you know that you might need to have a decision normally in time for Parliament to take that decision or endorse it. Um, Again, you are committing to a slimmed down version of the Trident nuclear deterrent. How much money would that save and what would that money be spent on instead? Well, I think the great challenge for the armed forces is that there are quite a a number of bits of really, really expensive kit Uh, and uh, the challenge there is that it denudes expenditure on people um, and on uh, cyber security. So uh, our reason for scaling down the deterrent, we think we can still have the same effective deterrent um, without the four boats. Uh, the money that that saves, and there are huge arguments about how much that saves. The important thing is it saves hundreds of millions of pounds at least, and that can be used for the other priorities facing the outforces.
0: Well, plans renewed from the last manifesto include recruitment bonuses of up to £10,000 for science, technology, engineering and maths graduates to tackle shortages in those skills. The party also promises improved housing by making defence meet the same standards as civilian landlords. They also promise to keep spending at 2% of national income on defence, which they say would mean a rising defence budget, because they believe their plan to cancel Brexit would boost the economy by £50 billion. Christopher Lee. Um,
2: Interesting uh, paper done two years ago, which showed that if, if if any party decided to get rid of Trident, they could have A&E for nothing for about 20 years. Nobody will do that. That's unrealistic. He
0: said hundreds of millions of pounds would be saved on a scaled down. On a scaled down version. Down well, I'm not sure that's version. true. But mm. what the
2: point is, is if you get rid of the whole process, which will be an expensive thing to do, and you wouldn't save any money just by getting rid of it for, for I think, sort of like seven or eight years. But after that, you could run a big chunk of A&E uh, for probably two generations. Um, but that's a different thing altogether. But, when you, but I, <clears throat> I, think the, I think the fascinating thing, listening to the three of them, or what the three of them are saying, what everybody else is saying as well, is that defence isn't an issue if you go back to the 1980s, 83, that sort of period, uh, and that was cruise missiles and the ladies of Greenham Common and a uh, protest like that, then defence was actually an issue, um, but it still wouldn't have swung a government or a party one way or the people one way or t'other. And that is the most important thing in this country. It is not a controversial, not a controversial thing. If you want to go to war with it. Mm. as in 2003, 2003, that's a different thing altogether. Yeah, just
0: on the subject of going to war, what do you make of the Lib Dems' idea of having this new law that would give MPs the final say on British military action?
2: Well, it's a different thing when the, when, 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 when the government of the day, in theory, has to go to Parliament and get permission from car- Parliament, just as the American president has to get Congress's permission. The other thing which the British Parliament has to, or the British government has to do, is get the attorney... The attorney general's view on whether the law has to, is is a, is a is a legal idea or a le- legal composition, mm. and and that is that is. That's debatable because the Attorney's got a hand in it. And so I think they, they probably get a lot, quite a lot of support. Parliament wants to have, say, yes, we're going, we're not going, and go back to 2003 uh, for, for the example of that.
0: Well, the Green Party has launched its election manifesto centred on a plan to make Britain carbon neutral by 2030. They would replace the Ministry of Defence with a Ministry for Security and Peace. But one of the Greens' co-leaders, Jonathan Bartley, told us they would continue to spend 2% of national income on defence but Defence would also have to play its part in their key plan of making the UK carbon neutral.
2: In Defence, we'd want
5: to see more electrification uh, of vehicles. We recognise that isn't always realistic with technology. Like every other sector, we want to see uh, a circular economy develop. We want to see waste used effectively, but we need to face up to also the reality of what it means in terms of pollution that comes from, inevitably, activity in the area of defence.
0: Christopher Lee, carbon neutral military.
2: Yeah, you can bring me a tank. And you wind it up and you hear nothing because it's electric now. No, that's not going to happen. You've got to, if, you, if you want a weapon system, you have to take a weapon system with all, all the ways of making it go. Good idea. But there are a lot of other ways. No, 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 no plastic plates in the mess, uh, etc. And that's happening anyway.
0: So, how much does the voter think about defence and security before going to the polls? Well, let's talk to Chris Curtis from the polling organisation YouGov. Uh, Hello, Chris Curtis. How does defence and security rate as an issue for voters?
6: Well, this election campaign, it's not coming very high at all. In our most recent issues tracker, where we ask, what do you think are the most important issues facing the country right now? Uh, Defence is way down the list. I think it's 9%. And not only is that low compared to the other issues in the list, it's also quite low. Uh, compared to the last election campaign as well when it was about three times that number. Um, Firstly, because the Conservative Party was trying to make it much more of an issue and attack the Labour Party much more on it. But also, of course, uh, we tragically saw um, a couple of uh, terrorist attacks um, in London and in Manchester over the course of that campaign.
0: So when has defence really featured highly in an election campaign?
6: Well, I think 2017 actually is an example of it featuring uh, fairly highly. The difference then, though, is that I think the Conservatives learned that their attacks on the Labour Party weren't particularly successful over defence. And secondly, Labour managed to move the issue quite quickly, particularly in the final week of the campaign, back over to police numbers. So, whilst the public was saying we really care about defence and security, particularly after these terrorist attacks, Labour managed to say, well, the most important thing is police numbers and the Conservative Party have cut police numbers by 20,000, so actually that meant that... um, it, it was a lot more significant, but but labor still didn't get damaged on it as much as they they might otherwise have done.
0: Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here in the studio with me and is listening to you, Chris.
2: Chris, um just a thought. Um, defense as defence as we think of it, can you go to war, do you, do you need certain hmm. weapons? Probably doesn't uh, figure it as I will vote one way or t'other. What does though, is the industrial issue, isn't it? um if you If you happen to live on the uh, on the Clyde, you want to know that, you're going, that the government's going to build more frigates. If you live in Barrow, there's going to be a nuclear submarine or or, or whatever. It's an industrial issue rather than simply a, a hard defence issue.
6: Yes, that's true. And obviously, you know, we look at the national picture, but also what happens in constituencies. Barrow is a very, very difficult place for Labour to hold on to in this election, and it's, more difficult, you know, it's made all the more difficult by the fact that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is seen as uh, not being strong on, on defence and the kind of things that um people in that constituency will want. And it's now a very, very marginal constituency, uh, partly because of that fact.
0: Is there any way, um, Chris Curtis, that the, the parties could be capitalising on defence when I'm thinking about when it's brought in in emergency situations for flooding, etc.?
6: I mean, I, I think really the, the other reason why defence isn't becoming so much of an important issue this election campaign is because, broadly speaking, and you've sort of touched on this, at least with the main two parties, there isn't very much policy difference between them. On the big ticket items, uh, they broadly agree whether that's defence, you know, on paper at least, they broadly agree whether that's defence spending, whether that's um, uh, Trident uh, renewing Trident or whether that's... Um, Uh, membership of nato etc actually on on the broad ticket items uh, they agree so i don't think that leaves open many opportunities um for the parties to capitalize it and when the conservatives did try to um make defence uh, an issue in the last election campaign, it, it did generally backfire, so I'm not sure they're going to try and do so again.
0: And is it always the same in the run-up to a general election, or can unexpected events like, say, a terror attack uh, have an impact?
6: Yes, they did, and, and we did see a big surge in in, in, in the salience of defence and terrorism in those final weeks of the election campaign in, in 2017. So yes, these events these events can have an impact and change the course of the discussion, and, and in fact very often do. So far, though, over this election campaign, the big differences we've seen has been an increase in salience for crime as there's been knife crime in the uk and also for the environment both of those issues um are up um, in terms of importance and really it's health and it's brexit and we saw this with the debate on tuesday that are dominating the headlines and dominating the coverage and so far defense hasn't really got a look and
0: it's not going to chris
6: you can you you can never predict the future we can only look at what's (laughs) happening now but so far we haven't seen it become a, a key election issue and I don't expect it to either
0: Alright, a wise man speaks Chris Curtis from YouGov Thank you for your time
1: the Zip
0: For the first time ever A serving head of MI6 Has given a recorded interview Sir Alex Younger Also known as C Has spoken on a podcast To Sky's defence correspondent Alistair Bunkle Here he is talking about How he was recruited
7: I was tapped on the shoulder Yes
4: So it did happen
7: It did, yes It did It was a bit of a surprise I'll be frank with you I had no um, conception of myself doing a career like this which is a good lesson actually uh, and it made me think really hard and in fact I did subsequently
4: pursue uh, some time in the military.
0: Well Alistair Bunkle joins us now, hi Alistair, how hi. did the interview come about then?
4: Well I tapped him on the shoulder
1: and he <laughs> said yes. Thanks,
4: I I asked, I have um, a relationship of sorts and they were willing to go ahead with it. I think for a number of reasons. I think um, in part as a sort of personal favour to me, but also I think more importantly, they have a a message they want to get out both internally, but also to a wider audience. And I think every uh, chief of MI6 that we've seen down the years has just pushed the envelope a little bit further every time uh, when it comes to public engagement, if you like. And I suppose for Alex Younger, who has given speeches before in public but never a recorded interview like this Mm. doing a podcast was just pushing it a little bit further.
0: What do you think he wants to get out?
4: Well I think he wanted to get a message out of the work that his staff do around the world the importance of that to UK national security and how MI6 fits into the wider drive to keep this country safe.
0: You asked him about some of the personal qualities the service looks for when recruiting. What did he say?
4: Well, you've got two elements there. You've got the officers who work for uh, MI6, who are British nationals, and then you've got the agents who uh, tend to be foreign nationals working on the ground in very dangerous um, circumstances in the interests of the UK. And all of them have a similar sense of attributes. It is a curiosity of world affairs. It is a dedication to serve for the right and for good. It is also at times the ability to operate in hostile environments and the ability to operate alone as well, which is very different, of course, to the military who tend to operate uh, in units. And to, of course, at the end of the day, uphold the strong values of the United Kingdom.
0: And what did he have to say about how the service is changing?
4: Well, I think he sees this very, very strongly. He has mentioned it time and time again in the few times that he does break into the public. He thinks that we are undergoing the world that is something of a technological revolution, and that is changing the way that not only everybody operates in the world, but therefore the way intelligence gathering has to operate. And he's a firm believer that if you don't adapt... And change and go with those technological changes as a service there will come a point where you're left behind and I think he sees it that some of the big players in global intelligence gathering and espionage now will fall away because they have not been willing enough to adapt
0: Mm. when they need to. Now you asked him about when he got the job and people realised what he really did for a living. Mm -hmm. Let's let's just play that moment.
7: I had a moment when I was um, at a sporting event um, at a school and I was on the sideline and I was talking to someone who congratulated me on being appointed. And I have a, a slightly flippant character sometimes, particularly when I'm not at work, and I, I was slightly dismissive, uh, or at least I downplayed it uh, in some way. I can't, I made a comment of some kind. And uh, this person, who I didn't really know, looked at me and said, no, we're relying on you now. And that was a moment for me. when someone I didn't know very well saw fit to remind me of the responsibilities that that I've got. And when I say I, it's really by extension the service. It's just that I'm the only declared member. It's a, it's a it's a moment that I still remember, actually.
0: So Alistair, what was he like?
4: Well, he's very, I think you get the sense from the podcast, particularly when you only listen on audio, he's quite quiet in terms of his delivery. He's very thoughtful. Um, he's a very charming man. He um, is personable but he was very considered in what he was... or the way he was answering questions to me.
0: Yeah, and were there any questions that um, he wouldn't answer?
4: No, there weren't. There were some
0: details he wouldn't go into, though, weren't there?
4: Yeah, there were. Um, In terms of questions he wouldn't answer, I mean, I did ask him about the legacy of the, uh, the Iraq War and perhaps perceived failings of intelligence there and the effect that that had on MI6... But on the whole, um, the purpose of the podcast series is not to be uh, an interrogative interview, as I might do in my position at Sky News, but to be more of a conversation about them as a person, them as a leader. But yeah, of course, there were elements of his past life that I did sort of slightly press him on um, gently uh, that he didn't want to reveal. There are certain things that uh, I've heard him say before that he decided not to go into this time. And I felt that I had to be respective of that
0: Christopher Lee is in the studio here Christopher you've seen C out and about haven't you at conferences and things
2: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's interesting Um, I saw something about uh, this time last year and it was a paper written in with the Foreign office and the MOD a combined paper which is really rare and they were saying what was one of the the, the sort of difficulties that the United Kingdom had faced and they put it uh, they faced since uh, 1983 that's after the Falklands and it was all to do with the failure of intelligence to be a government to be advised and for, for a government not to have you know, up-to-date intelligence or for intelligence not to have sorted the problem out
0: mm. for them. Um, Alistair, um how can we hear your podcast uh, with Sir Alex Younger?
4: So, iTunes, Spotify, or the the um, the the podcast app on your iPhone, if you've got one, it's called Off the Record with Alistair Bunkle, and there is a there's a few in the sort of the back the back library, if you like, mm. including if you're interested in the military, and I'm sure you are, if you're listening to this this program. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, Commander Will King, who was the captain of HMS Montrose in the Strait of Hormuz during the recent uh, crisis there. So, uh, quite a wide variety, but. Well beyond just military and security matters as well. I was to,
2: did he did he mention the bar? He did. he did mention he the bar. Did, yes. Tell us about the bar quickly. <laughs>
4: well, we spoke about how you can decompress when you have to operate and do your job in secret. You can't just go down the bar, go down the pub, and uh, tell your mates. what I don't what suppose a rubbish you've been invited to
0: have you, Alistair? I can
4: possibly say, and I can't <laughs> tell you what the name is as well. But it's got a great I got name. I've got a
0: feeling you've been there. You know, I just it's, got this feeling.
4: It's uh, it was the it was the line that captured the headlines from most of the newspapers, <laughs> I think, which I was fine by because uh, all publicity is good publicity.
0: Okay. Alistair Brunkle, thank you very much for your time. Good to speak to you today. Uh, Christopher, what's on the agenda for next week then?
2: Well, I think the Americans got a problem and that's that they're looking at uh, the the most important drone they have. It's a big drone, 130-odd wingspan, 30 feet wingspan, and they've been using it for about only 20 years. Last June, one of them was shot down by the Iranians, Uh, and this thing operates at 60,000 feet. The Americans are having to rethink whether they can carry on using it, and they've got to move. What are the, to the implications be of that then yeah, well they've got to rely far more on on, on satellite uh, which not necessarily is the best thing to operate because you can 't steady it you can't target it so easily but anyway this thing which 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 bails out at about three hundred thousand u s dollars at a time uh, I think they're probably going to have to to get rid of it or, or replace it with something and they've got to do that in a hurry because places like the middle East don't settle down
0: and that's it for this week my thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening join the discussion on twitter followers at bfbs sit we we'll be back again the same time next week from me Kate Shippo, thanks for listening bye bye for now